2 Timothy chapter number 1, and we're going to look at the first seven verses here this morning. We won't move around too much today, uh, as we often do. Uh, we're just going to focus right here on this text. The 2 Timothy chapter number 1, and beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says there, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, and without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. And I am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I want to speak this morning just simply on the thought, a mother's influence. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the time this morning, or thank you for mom. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to absorb what you have from us for us this morning from your word. May we be attentive, may our hearts be open, and the Holy Spirit, may you convict and convince us of the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as you look here at 2 Timothy, as Paul begins, this is uh, probably the last letter that the Apostle Paul would write. He's in prison and he's about to be beheaded and he knows it. He talks and he writes to Timothy who is a son in the faith. When he refers to him as his son, he's not talking about a natural biological child. He is a young man that Paul in his missionary endeavors ran across and brought, led to Christ and trained and influenced and developed and he's been investing in him uh, for many years and they have a very special and close relationship um, and Paul is telling him that I'm, I long to see you Paul's in Rome in prison uh, and Timothy is feeling the weight of the age in which they live they are dealing with rampant apostasy within the church they're uh, the constant pressures of false doctrine coming in and people turning from the truth that they've been taught and embracing uh, a false a false system of beliefs and uh, and acting in their faith and uh, and that's burdensome and that's the reference that Paul makes to Timothy's tears just the the heaviness and the weight of people that he's trained and that he's invested in and that he's trusted turning on him and uh, and Paul feels the pain and he says but when I think about the strength of your faith it gives me joy that you've stood strong that you're willing uh, to fight the fight and throughout the book of 2nd Timothy he continues to build upon that the Apostle Paul in Timothy's life but Paul doesn't take the credit for Timothy's faith he doesn't take the credit for Timothy's strength he doesn't, he doesn't mention here about the hours that he's invested. He says in verse number 6, uh, or <clears throat> excuse me, in verse number 5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice. And so he looks and he goes back and Paul gives the credit 
to a godly grandmother and mother that invested in and trained uh, this young man uh, that God would later call to pastor uh, the church at Ephesus as he uh, would go through life. And so their bond is incredibly strong. And the times in which they live and serve are incredibly difficult. But yet he remains faithful. While others are turning away, he stands strong. So, Pastor, how do you know that was the influence or what was going on? Notice in verse 15 of chapter 1, This thou knowest that all they that which are in Asia be turned away from me. And then he lists a couple of specific ones that uh, were teaching doctrine that he was familiar with. And so he makes the case. Paul tells him in his message to Timothy here, in the midst of these trying times, you be strong in chapter 2. In verse number 3, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's commanding him, encouraging him uh, to stay faithful. Back up just a couple of verses in chapter 2 and verse number 1, he tells them, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in thee, uh, in Christ Jesus. Uh, and so he said, the, the, this is something, Timothy, that you're dealing with that requires the power and the grace of God. For you to endure this, for you to stand strong in this, for you to be faithful, for you to lead others to stay true to the, to the word, to not be embittered, to not grow angry, to not uh, become overwhelmed, it requires, <coughs> excuse me, the gift of God's grace and God's power and strength. He tells him in chapter three in verses 14 and 15, but continue thou, and the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child, again referencing his mother and grandmother, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are, also, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul comes down to it and he addresses the issues of the day. And he looks at this young pastor whom he dearly loves, uh, and his mind's eye from his prison cell. And he says to him, continue. Be strong. Stay true. Don't worry about and don't, don't be defeated by what others are doing. You stand fast in the faith and, uh, and move forward. And I'm convinced that your faith is genuine and that it's real. Because I know the faith that was in your grandmother and your mother. I know what they've poured into you. I know what they've invested in you. I know the influence and the impact that they have had uh, on your life. And I would just say this morning that the impact of a mother in a person's life is, is almost indescribable. There's a story that was told years ago about a peculiar mother and by her children. She had uh, four children and they were outside playing hide and seek in the yard one day and uh, it was uh, back in, uh, you know, it's kind of a different era, a different time. There were uh, in town, but there were picket fences out in the front yards and everybody had uh, chickens and other kinds of, uh, of animals, even in town to provide for some of their uh, needs. And so uh, this family was in such a state. They, uh, they had their home and they had their picket fences and their shrubbery and, uh, and then they had their neighbors. Uh, that were right next door and uh, they were outside playing hide-and-seek and all of a sudden from a, over top of the shrubbery comes mother's two prized white rock 
chickens. They're flying, but not under their own power. Their necks have been thoroughly wrung. And the children are horrified as the neighbor whom they describe as Mr. Blank, uh, I'm sure protecting his actual name, uh, later on is cursing and scolding and calling them names and their mother's names and the chicken's names. And, uh, and they, as he wrings their necks and flings them back over the fence because they've been in his garden pecking at his prized lettuce. And so the children, horrified, wait out the storm and then rush into the kitchen to tell mother uh, what's going on and how uh, they can't believe that Mr. Blank would call him such names and do such horrible things and he's killed your chicken. And then they braced for mother's reaction, expecting for her to go out and give back as good as they got. Uh, and to put up a fight and to how dare you uh, destroy my prized purebred stock chickens. But to their surprise, mother just looked at them and looked at the oldest son and said, go get the kettle and fill it up with water and put it on. And to the daughter, or she said, uh, you know, go and gave some other instruction to another son, go and get the axe. So that when the hatchet, so we can cut off the heads. And the children stood in amazement. Mother dressed the chickens, she put them in and began to cook. And soon the house was filled with the aroma of uh, fresh stewing chicken. And uh, the kids got excited wondering what would be for supper. Would it be chicken and dumplings or would it be chicken pot pie? And so they soon found out that it would be pie. And as they got ready for that pie to be made and they watched mother roll out her crust and cut in her signature leaf pattern into the crust, she took it out and laid it over and she made two of them. As the pies were baking to a nice golden flaky crust uh, uh, and getting all ready to go, they, uh, she began to prepare a cake. And as she prepared this lemon cake, and uh, she lost me at lemon, really. When I was preparing the story, I debated whether I'd change it to a real cake, chocolate. Uh, but uh, a lemon cake with white frosting and coconut, and they got it all smeared out, and the kids' mouths were salivating. And they're getting ready for dinner, and mother's standing there with her apron still on, and uh, and she kind of fixes her hair a little bit and then she uh, cuts the, prepares one of the pies and throws a cloth over it and then she cuts a nice big piece of the cake out and they're kind of surprised because normally she wouldn't allow that to happen until after the meal. And they're still like wondering what's going to happen. The, pretty soon she's going to call dad before he gets home so when he gets home he can go straight over here and deal with Mr. Blank. But she doesn't do that. She takes the pie in one hand and she takes the cake in the other and she stands up straight and she gets her shoulders nice and erect and she uh, holds her head up high and she goes across the way and the kids are standing now with their faces pressed against the glass and horrified at what's going to happen. They're, she's headed to Mr. Blank's front door. What is he going to do? Certainly a man that's capable of wringing the necks of such chickens is capable of anything and they fear for mother safety. She walked up and she pounded on the door. Mr. Blank came to the door and she spoke a few kind words and apologized for the damage to his lettuce that her chickens had caused and offered him the pot pie and the cake and the man who before had no shortage of vocabulary and words stood there in shame as he accepted the gift from mother. The kids didn't understand. Mom came back and they began to question her and she said this poor Mr. Blank whose vocabulary never lacked 
epithets, the story goes. Had not a word at his command. Even an outraged child could feel a twinge of pity for him, they remembered. That mother's sincere and kindly overture. And then the man that is telling the story said this, Remembering mother as she lived and as she died, I realized that she never stepped out of character. She was always and only herself in any circumstance or situation. She told the children, Mr. Blank is not a Christian. Our chickens did damage his lettuce. And the least I could do is make a... Uh, to, to try to make a way to make things right and to show him the love of God. And then she said this. She said, not only is he our neighbor, but he is our responsibility. And as the man continues and he reads, he says, remembering his mother, her belief in God and her unshakable quality of his word was profoundly simple. If Jesus said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them, uh, that hates you and despitefully use you, then he meant just that. And it was our responsibility to obey his directive quite literally. He said, I've often laughingly said that mother lived by the three G's in the Christian life. He said that living the Christian life, as mother would say growing up, takes a certain amount of gumption. You got to have some. Then she would say it takes all the grit that you can muster. And then she said, when you then sprinkle in the wonderful grace of God, then anybody can get along just fine. Amen. You know, when we try to do things in our own way, we dishonor the Lord, we dishonor our heritage. Mm -hmm. But when we let God work, then God can do amazing things. This mother tr truly was peculiar, especially by today's standards. Most of us would not respond in such a way. But she did. And it imprinted upon the minds, the soul, the character of her own children, a desire uh, to live in such a way and to be kind and compassionate to others. Andrew Jackson once stated that the memory of his mother and her teachings were the only capital with which he had to, with his, to begin life. And he said, upon that capital, I have made my way. Became the president. Napoleon Bonaparte said, let France have good mothers and France will have good sons. A French general, leaving the presence of Martha Washington, stated, It is not surprising that America should produce great men, since America can produce great mothers. And so when we stop and we think about the influence of mothers, we thank you. A mother's influence lasts a lifetime, even if it's only offered briefly. Abraham Lincoln, whose mother died when he was just nine, famously stated that all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. So what is it that Lois and Eunice instilled in young Timothy? What is it that we need to instill in our children? If we want faith to sustain, if we want lives that are honoring to God and used by God in the lives of our children, how and what is it that we are to offer? And I say, man, dads are sitting here thinking, uh, you know, man, I'm glad this is all on mom. No, it's not. It's your responsibility to help, to lead, to guide, and you get your turn in about a month. 
But from the early stages of life, it's mom that lays the foundation. So what did they lay? I want you to notice in verse number five of our text this morning, chapter one. Paul from his prison cell writes, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in me. There are a lot of people that claim to be people of faith, but there's not much authenticity about their lives. What makes this powerful and what made the lives and the message of Lois and Eunice powerful, what makes the lives of our faith powerful to neighbors and to our children and grandchildren and co-workers and wherever we go is when it's unfeigned, when it's not artificial, when it's real and genuine and pure. We see, first of all here, he starts with that statement. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first. It's real. I'm not the kind of person that's real showy. I don't like people that put on a show or to be around people that put on a show. I don't, I, I don't like a lot of superficial, artificial things. I, I like real. I can take raw as long as it's real. As a matter of fact, I would rather have somebody that's rough around the edges that's real than someone that's polished and you can't believe anything that they say. I'd rather have someone that I can have confidence that their word is their bond. Someone that will state the truth rather than trying to make it flowery. I can just hear what I'm going to be told on the way out of the service this morning now. I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not able to get Mr. Blank treatment on the way out of Santa Lava. Uh, so, but I, I'd rather if somebody's got something to say that they just come out and say it. Don't beat around the bush. Just say it. Now, I'm going to warn you, if you live that way, you're not going to have many friends. Because we don't live in an age where people can take it. Most people can't tolerate the truth. Most people don't want to hear the truth. But the truth is what transforms and changes lives. And the truth this morning is this. The truth is, is that if I would be the kind of person, the kind of Christian, the kind of husband, the kind of father, the kind of grandfather that could possibly potentially have an opportunity to make a difference, I'm never going to get anywhere uh, by just putting a lot of polish on it. Uh, and if I've got to fix problems. I've got to solve issues. I've got to state truth. Their faith is unfeigned. They're just genuine Christians. They're just genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're genuine students of the Word of God. They're genuine servants of the Savior that has given them eternal life. And if that means prison, then so be it. If that means separation, so be it. If that means persecution, so be it. If it means blessing and, uh, and abundance, then so be it. Uh, and Paul stated that earlier in his life in ministry. I know how to be persecuted. I know how to suffer. I know how to be hungry. I know how to be devoid and robbed of my sleep. I also know how to abound and to enjoy blessing and to enjoy fellowship and to enjoy comfort. I've learned that whatsoever state that I'm in, whether it's good or bad, pleasurable or miserable, that I'm content in my walk with God and my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the message that Paul's commending here to Timothy from his prison cell, his final prison cell. From here he will go to heaven. And he says to Timothy, hang on to that genuine faith, that unfeigned faith. That's so hard for 
people to come to Christ is because so few Christians are genuine. Because so few Christians are real. The message that we preach with our mouth and the message that we preach with our lives often don't match. And when that's the case, we invalidate the power of the Word of God. A faith unfeigned. Two just brief thoughts about an unfeigned faith that I believe are important. Number one, what we're talking about here is be a person of genuine integrity. Let integrity be your guide. We are being destroyed by pragmatism. Pragmatic government, pragmatic ministry, pragmatic ways of living. What that means simply is that if the, if the ends justify the means, then the means are acceptable. Now there are some things that are unacceptable. Even if it helps me get to my stated goal, if it's an unethical or ungodly or unrighteous uh, way of obtaining it, then it doesn't really matter when I do obtain it because I've ruined the value of it. Amen. I've destroyed the integrity of it. Be genuine in your integrity. Pastor, it'll take us longer to get where we're going. It'll take me longer to accomplish with my life. Yeah, but when you finally get there, it'll mean something. When you finally get there, it'll have value. When you finally get there, it'll be a faith that you can stand on. It won't be something that sweeps you away. They, they, listen, Timothy is a rarity. You stop around and you look at how many third generation Christians stay true to what they were taught when they were young and walk with God for a lifetime. There aren't many. I'm not saying there aren't any. I'm saying there aren't many. And what we have to understand is that we must be genuine in our integrity. And then secondly, I would say, and we could, I could, boy, I could preach this for about three weeks, but I'm just going to give you one more thought here. Be genuine in your humility. Be genuinely humble. I, I, I have a hard time. And this is, I, I know I shouldn't be this way. I know this is something, especially as a pastor, that I should have overcome probably already, especially since I've been one for nearly 20 years. But I have a hard time with people that are artificially humble. They, they put on, you know, they, they mistreat people or hurt people or they're, uh, they're, they're kind of two-faced in the way that they go about things. But let somebody new walk in and all of a sudden uh, they're syrupy sweet and they're all over the place and they're going to solve all of your problems. That's great if you're that way all the time. But don't be one way over here and another way over there. I can stand here sometimes I can watch. I can watch Brother Fred. He's got one person. I'm just picking on Brother Fred. He's not really this way. Uh, but he's got one personality whenever he's talking to people in this section. And he's got a different personality whenever he's talking to people in this section. And he's got a different. I mean, over there he's syrupy, sweet, nice. And over here he gets a little bit mischievous and cranky. Uh, and over here he's downright mean. And over here, uh, I mean, you just don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. But if somebody new comes in, then he acts like he's over here still. Y'all get what I'm trying to say this morning. Be, just be real. Just be genuine. I'm grateful for people in our church that are just authentic. Say, Pastor, is everybody authentic? In no church anywhere ever. Some people don't know how to be authentic. They've been living a life for so long and they've been 
uh, acting one way in one place and one way in another for so long that they've lost the capacity to be real and genuine and authentic. Let's just be authentic. And I'm not saying don't improve and don't get better. I mean, if, if you're a mean old cuss, don't stay one. Work on it. But, but improve. But be real. And so, exactly. Because that's what it takes. If I don't have God help me, I'm not getting anywhere. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, listen, you are blessed beyond measure because not only do you have one of the, probably the greatest of the apostles to instill and invest in your life, but even more than that, you had a mother and a grandmother that instilled in you the principles and the truths of God's word. And they didn't just teach it to you and then live differently at home. They imprinted it on your soul because it's the essence of who they are. Praise God. What kind of Christian are we? And I'm not talking to just the moms this morning. Everyone in here should look and evaluate and rise up and claim the mantle of an unfeigned faith. Be real, be genuine, be authentic. Secondly, I would say this. Notice in verse number eight. We're going to bounce to verse eight and then go back to verse number seven. In verse number eight, be thou not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Nor of me his prisoner, Paul says, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. What we see secondly about their faith is that not only was it a faith that was unfeigned, but it's a faith that's unashamed. And it's interesting that Paul says, don't be ashamed of me, a prisoner. You know, sometimes... If we go to minister to someone or we go to help someone or we go to get involved with someone that maybe, uh, maybe they, they don't measure up to what our expectations are or how we want them to look or how we want them to act or how uh, we think they should. Uh, and, and, you know, you kind of sheepishly. We've all got that family member, right? We've all got that family member that we have to claim but we don't want to. You know, you get in a big gathering and, and you're there and you're like, yeah. Yeah, that, that's my, my cousin on, on my mom's side. But I really don't know them that well. Uh, and we just kind of, we, we've all got that family member. Paul says, I'm a prisoner. Don't be ashamed of me. I'm going to die here. Don't be ashamed of that. I'm dying for the faith. He said, don't be ashamed. Jesus is... Jesus is being crucified again in the culture. Sound familiar? You can believe in God in today's culture as long as that God's name isn't Jesus Christ. And you can call on the name of any God. You can go to state assemblies to the Capitol and you can pray. Do you know that there are state assemblies that when they invite pastors to come and pray to open a session, which is tradition in our nation, that they will now instruct, in some cases, pastors uh, to not pray or close their prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. You can pray to any other God, but not Jesus. Why? Do you think that the world doesn't understand and that Satan doesn't know that there's only one true, real God? There's only one living God. And his name is Jesus Christ. A faith unashamed. So what's Paul telling him? He's saying, listen, you've got these guys coming in, uh, Phagellus and Hermogenes, who are teaching this false doctrine, who are destroying the faith. He says, this knowest thou that all they which are in Asia have turned away from me. They've turned from the faith, Timothy. 
Be not ashamed. The people that used to stand with you now stand against you. The people that used to love you now despise you. The people that used to go to war with you now uh, will be standing against you with the enemy. But don't be ashamed. Stand with those that stand with for right. We ought to, as God's people, stand with those that stand for right. They may not always dot every I the same way we do or cross every T the same way, but if they stand for the gospel and God's truth and God's righteousness, then stand together. Stand with those that stand for what's right. I don't have, I, I, listen, I, I want to reach out to and share my faith, cultivate relationships with people that uh, are from all walks of life that, that look and, and need for and are longing for the Lord. Uh, but once it becomes clear that they have no interest, no desire, I, I've got to, I'm, I'm going to invest my time in people that have desire. And I'm not going to spend a lot of casual leisure time with people that are attacking and dragging down my walk with God and my faith in Him. Why? Because that is diminishing, it's draining. We need to be investing in people that, that live for God and spend time with those that stand for right. Yes, you need to go out into the community and you need to befriend neighbors and you need to invest in telling them and sharing with them the truth of the scripture and the gospel. But when it comes to, uh, to who am I going to just hang out with and, uh, and, and be open with completely and, uh, and, and share my burdens and, uh, and, and all of those types of things, uh, then I need to stand with those that are standing for what's right. I need people that will encourage me in my faith. And then secondly, about the faith unchained, I would say this, that we need to be willing to pay a price, any price. The Apostle Paul is willing to pay any price. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you better be ready to pay the price. Because if you stand for right, there's a price to be paid. If you stand for righteousness, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution doesn't mean that all of life is that way but there are going to be times whenever it's not going to always be easy be willing to pay the price then thirdly and lastly this morning let you back up to verse number seven for a moment he says for god hath not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind Praise god. it is a faith unafraid see he says to timothy be real he says to timothy be unashamed and then he says, don't be afraid. God's with you. The principles, the truth of God's word is with you. Be unafraid to stand for truth. We have too many Christians today that are afraid to stand for truth. We have, we have too few people that are, that are, listen, especially with the woke mob and all of the things like that that go on in our culture and society. Uh, there, there's not any room left out in the world for differences of opinion and civility, uh, at least not on the woke side. If you don't agree with them, then they're going to crucify you. That's the world in which we live. And it's only going to get worse. How do you know, Pastor? Because it has to for him to come back. And it's his will to come back and to receive his bride into himself. And, uh, and as, a, as people that understand and know the word of God, we have to be understanding that uh, we need to stand for truth in an hour where truth is being rewritten and erased and destroyed. And then we need to do everything in God's power, not our own. Notice again in verse 7, he says, For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but 
of power and of love from Shalman. Where did that strength come from to stand from that? You can't stand in that power anymore. We don't have that much power. We don't have that much strength. We don't have that much ability. But God does. Have the Apostle Paul stand boldly and say, I know that I'm here and that they're going to behead me. I'm not getting out of here. How do you do that and not plead for mercy, but just stand for right? Because he knew. And because God gave him the strength and the grace to do it. I'm grateful that it's not God's will for all of us to suffer such persecution. But I'm also grateful for the testimony of those that stood when it was his will. So, Pastor, why would God... I'm not God. I don't have all those answers. But I do know this. That by standing and by allowing themselves to be sacrificed when all they had to do was just say, I'll denounce Christ. The message that they sent was a message of, I believe this enough to die for it. I will not renounce my Savior, even though you're going to burn me alive. Even though you're going to chop off my head. I will. Listen, you have to really believe something. How can anybody believe something so much? Because they experienced the compassion and the love of a Savior that was real. Amen. Pastor, I, I've never felt that. You can. He wants to show that to you. He's longing to give you that gift, to be that burden. But until I open my heart to him, I never will. You see, if I don't ever understand and realize the, the depth and the power of my sin, then I'll never appreciate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to forgive me my sin. Mm -hmm. It's not just a matter of forgiveness, it's a matter of atonement. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not just a matter of God looking down and saying, I forgive your sin. It's a matter of saying, your sin has been paid for. I forgive your sin. You see, it's one thing for God to say, your sin's forgiven, but then his holiness and his justice is still compromised. But God's love for us was so great that he said, I cannot compromise who I am. I must be true to myself, but I love you so much that I'm willing to become your sin and to have all of the punishment of that sin born and poured out upon my son's body in Jesus Christ so that whenever he absorbed it and paid it and then rose from the grave that he has the power to say I've paid the debt justice is satisfied justice has been served God's wrath has been appeased I forgive your sin he has the power to forgive it because he's paid for it he didn't just write it off he paid it you stop and you think about the economy that we're in right now and there are going to be a lot of people over the, the next few years that uh, financially are going to be ruined in all likelihood. And when that comes about, there are, going to be, uh, there are going to be proceedings of bankruptcy and things of that and judges are going to just wipe away debt. Let me tell you something this morning. Jesus didn't just wipe away the debt of our sin. 
Jesus went in and paid the account in full. And he said, I've paid your debt. And I forgive you. You don't have to repay me because you don't have what you need to repay me anyway. I forgive your debt. I wipe your slate clean. You have a brand new beginning as a child of God. Listen, if you believe that this morning, if you know and understand and recognize the value of what Christ did for you, that I am a sinner without hope and I can do nothing to reconcile myself to God. But Jesus Christ looked down from heaven in love and said to me, I love you enough to be your sin so that God's wrath will be satisfied. And the demonstration of God's love was made in Christ Jesus. While I was still a sinner, the Bible says, but God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as he made that sacrifice on Calvary's cross and then he overcame death and hell and rose from the grave three days later and then ascended to the presence of his father, he looks down and says, I became your sin, I paid your debt, if you'll believe that I am the Son of God and you'll put your faith and trust in me and accept the gift. He's offering the gift of salvation. Will I extend my hand in faith and receive it? Or will I say no and pass it by? When I realized the horror of my sin and the horror that it took to reconcile me to God, then all of a sudden the gift of salvation becomes much more valuable to me. It's not just a prayer prayed. It's a sacrifice received. James Hudson Taylor was born in 1832. He died in 1905 and was a pioneer missionary that went to China. He went to China in 1854 when he was just 22 years of age. You have to understand, and I think folks here this morning perhaps that are under the age of about 30 or 40 have a hard time or have a harder time to kind of really understand this because you've never lived in your life without a cell phone if you're under 30 you haven't lived much of your life without facetime and things like that and texting and constant connection and communication wherever you are in the world we're not disconnected from loved ones anymore it's amazing technology is amazing but I'm going to tell you something, in 1854, it took six months to cross the ocean in a sailing vessel. In 1854, you had to wait for a letter to arrive, and it would arrive six to nine months after it was written. And in 1854, whenever Hudson Taylor went to China answering God's call in his life to be a missionary, When he said goodbye to home, he said goodbye forever. He tells the story remembering 30 years after he's left England for China. And as he's reminiscing, he says, 30 years ago when I was leaving the shores of England for China, my beloved mother came to see me off from Liverpool. He said, we stood there on the dock until it was time to board the ship and when it was time to board, she came aboard with me, and I'll never forget that day. He said, as we walked into on up the plank on, on the gangplank onto that ship, and as we went down into the little cabin that was going to be my home for the next six months, 
I watched mother with her loving hand as she smoothed my bed, pushed out the wrinkles. How she sat beside me and joined with me in the last hymn that we would sing together before the long party. He continued reflecting and said, she knelt down and she prayed. And that was the last prayer of mother that I was to hear before I left for China. Then the notice was given that it was time to, for the guest on board to get off the ship. She walked down the plank and I went up to the rail. And as I stood there, as the boat was unmoored and loosed and sent on its way, she gave her blessing, said, I love you. And as I stood alone on the deck, I saw her stand on the dock. She watched as the ship made its way through the harbor. She never left. She just got closer to the end of the pier. And she got closer to the end of the pier. And I looked back and I saw her. The anguish of her heart and soul pierced me like a knife. He said, I never knew so fully until then what God so loved the world man. And I'm quite sure that my precious mother learned more of the love of God to the perishing and then in that than in that hour than in all of her life before. God gave Hudson Taylor's mother the joy of rearing a missionary for him that she might have the gift of love to give to God. God loves you. Enough to stand on the edge of heaven and to watch his only son go to his certain death only to know that when it was all said and done and the son was on that cross that he had to stand up and for a moment not treat Jesus as his father but treat Jesus as God would treat sin and as he unleashed the wrath of Almighty God upon His Son who was now His sin, our sin, with a broken heart, our debt was paid. When He sat down on the throne, Jesus said, it is finished. He completed the transaction and He led those that had gone before that were captive in Sheol and Hades, the place that we would refer to as hell, that were waiting for their redemption to be paid. Those that had trusted him before his crucifixion, he led captivity captive. He led them out. He brought them into the presence of God. And when we leave this life, we come into the presence of our God. It's because God so loved us. No one 
can demonstrate that kind of love like mother. If you had the honor and the privilege of having a godly mother, never take it for granted. If you didn't, understand and realize that was just the work of sin and this earth. That she loves you. And that God loves you. And if you would receive the gift that he offers, you can have eternal life.